Hello, everybody. This is David Goldsmith, and welcome to another edition of the Age of Infinite. Honestly, we're not going to be stepping into the fourth industrial revolution if we do things right. The Internet of Things and connected devices, is that our real future? We have the possibility to create the Age of Infinite, infinite possibilities and infinite resources going into space. And the podcast is brought to you by the Project Moon Hut Foundation, where we are looking to establish a box with a roof and a door on the moon, a moon hut. We were named by NASA, and it is through the accelerated development of an Earth and space-based ecosystem. Then we plan on using these endeavors to have paradigm shifting and innovation and turn that back on Earth to change how we live on Earth, to improve how we live on Earth for all species. And today we're going to be exploring why it's important to have inclusive commercialization of space. We have a guest that I think it's been two years I've tried to get on. He comes highly recommended, uh, Narian Prasad. He is the co-founder of StatSearch uh, and curator of New Space India. Hello, Nariad, how are you? Narian. Hi. Hi, David. Uh, it's a pleasure talking to you. And, uh, you know, having known you, you're a prolific speaker. I can, I hope to keep up. You will do amazingly well. It's not about the speaking. It's about the content. And I'm here to learn from you. And so uh, you have a set of an outline for us to work from. Yeah, I do have, uh, you know, about five bullet points of things that I wanted to say broadly. Okay. So why don't you give them to me? I'll write them down. Sure. So as a part of the whole uh, inclusive approach to, you know, space economy and uh, commercialization of space, I, you know, I tend to think that taking a historical context to, to begin with. So why don't we start, why don't we start with just give me the outline and then we can go yeah. into the, the content wise. Sure. So the outline is about uh, the legacy of traditional space first. Legacy. You know, that's what we've been doing for the last uh, 70 years. Okay. Number two. And, and number two would be looking at a very close industry, which is in terms of what are the lessons from the aviation industry that, you know, we have learned over the last 120 years to now, which can be, you know, replicated in space. Okay. Number three. Number three would be, you know, what is uh, new space and, you know, how is new space done in old space countries? Number four. Number four is, uh, you know, what is new space in new countries or new space wearing countries? New countries, okay. And number five is uh, generally, you know, what are the assumptions uh, of, uh, you know, technology or maturity in terms of uh, technology in, in general and how that uh, making early assumptions can early assumptions can go really wrong at certain point of time. So kind of some lessons that I had in mind. Okay. So let's start with number one, the legacy of traditional space. Let's uh, where are we going to go with this? Help me. Sure. So the legacy of uh, traditional space we all know is uh, military space, right? So essentially, uh, you know, countries uh, backing, uh, you know, uh, inventors and, uh, and entrepreneurs within their own borders to say that we're going to build up a certain capability and this is going to be exclusive to our country and, and you know, our uh, borders and, and we're going to deploy this against uh, enemies or, you know, uh, threats that come outside. 
from outside. So that's the legacy of uh, of traditional space. And uh, uh, essentially, what I wanted to bring up there is that uh, a lot of uh, innovation gets fueled in that way in many industries that's happened in uh, you know, for, for possibly in the aviation industry and, you know, going back to the industrial revolution, maybe you could look at many, many, many inventions and, and technologies that have been funded in that way. But then there's a time in which, uh, you know, this kind of innovations spills over and they become really kind of commercial as in they, they become kind of boring and they become kind of integrated into lives of people and you will not notice it that you know this had a military background in all of it and that's because uh, there's an there's a very nice integration into the whole economy and the way people are doing uh, stuff with it and using it and are being productive and are being are using it in their daily lives for doing some part of it right so these are traditionally like examples that you would take of spin off or uh, technologies from uh, from you know NASA or you would take examples from uh, services. Uh, for example, it could be uh, an ATM machine which is powered by the satellite, where uh, you would never know a normal person would never know that there's a satellite link behind this, a this this ATM and I'm drawing money in this. But then you know it's just made so boring that the that people don't notice it and that's making money and that's making uh, you know tech is the funneling productivity of the kind of people. So, so let, let me, I will jump in here for a minute because I, I'm, my mind is racing and I've got two points that I'd, or possibly three, but two I'd like to, uh, to explore. Military in space, was, was it really, and I don't know really in a, in a bad way or a good way, uh, was space a military expedition or was it a first an exploratory, exploratory and then converted to military for many countries? Uh, was the U.S. really trying to do first for military uh, or would we go back to Von Braun and the creation of rockets and wanting to get into space or we go to Da Vinci or whomever else? Was it, was space, space itself, I could say other industries, but was space a mixture it was a different you know what i'm asking yeah, yeah absolutely in fact you don't need to just go back to the last 70 years you can go back to about 300 years you know so the whole uh, the whole technology in rocketry itself is very interesting we had the chinese working on uh, gunpowder which eventually made way to india and i think many people don't know this that uh, uh, in the 1700s, there was a king in southern India, the state where I come from, who, you know, essentially had a, a unit within his army which worked on bamboo rockets. And uh, these bamboo rockets were, uh, you know, fueled by uh, uh, gunpowder and uh, they essentially had uh, mastered a little bit above the basics of rocketry and they had inducted these rocketry into their uh, military forces. And these uh, weapons in the 1700s, the late 1700s, were used against the British forces that were in India and they were fighting these Indian kingdoms. And this particular king, he had a regiment that used, uh, you know, these rockets against the British troops. And eventually, unfortunately, this uh, southern Indian king lost the war. And uh, then, you know, the British uh, general, one of the, I think, lieutenants or generals called Congreve, he uh, actually picked up this technology and he saw an interest into this and he saw how good this could be if it's you know matured and developed over time and this is you know the late 1700s and early 1800s that i'm talking about 
not even the 1950s or 1940s when you know the people like Von Braun come into the picture. And this we is have early. To, we, I, I think we really have to think about. At least I have to go back. And my mind is racing. Okay, yeah. what was 1700 India like? I mean, I, I've been through India. I've been to Jaipur and Agra and a bunch of places. And the if you think back at 1700, I mean, we are not. We don't have all these amenities that we have today. This is really, really, really far back. Yeah, absolutely. And, and the thing is, in India, in 1700s, is a bunch of uh, princely states, like, you know, what would uh, 1700s look like in much of Europe, where you had, for example, Germany had, I think, 500 different small little kingdoms here and there, uh, which consolidated over time. And very much like European, uh, the entire European continent, uh, India was uh, divided in, uh, you know, kind of uh, culture and language and kingdoms spread over. And some of the kingdoms and were more prosperous and, you know, uh, uh, and the artisans there and the trade there enabled a lot of new technology and, and a lot of new innovation. And that goes back to some of this kind of rocketry where, uh, you know, the, these guys were uh, experimenting on using uh, rockets against uh, as a part of the military technology. And, you know, just to go back to a little bit to that, you know, once the guy lost, uh, in fact, that's how rocketry made its way to, the, to Europe. Because in 1800s, when Congreve, you know, saw the potential of rockets, the British forces took that rocketry technology and went and used it against Napoleon. Oh, really? Huh. Yeah. So, and so you see how, you know, the technology comes, uh, the early technology of gunpowder coming from China and then coming to India and going to Europe. And this is all, as I said, you know, pre, uh, you know, pre Von Braun kind of uh, generation. That's fantastic. You tied it, you tied it way back, which I love because I had not gone back to gunpowder and gunpowder being the prelude to rocketry, being the prelude to the next, to the next, the next. Yeah, that's a, that's a, a great, uh, a great way to tie it all together. So that was, I, I hadn't done that. And that's, that's fantastic. The, the other one <clears throat> that I had brought up, or it was in my mind, is I'm working on a project in Los Angeles. And it is a university in a Los Angeles area. And what, what NASA is doing, or the military is doing, it's a combination. It's, no, it's military. It's not NASA. The military is doing, is they're letting their IP that they no longer need to be commercialized by the local companies through a project joint venture, public-private, where they're bringing in individuals and saying, this is the tech we have, what can you do with it? Which I had never heard of that type of found uh, format, which is amazing. I never thought, I mean, I know it leaked into the environment, I know there was, but this was something that's directly happening in my life. So it's uh, uh, interesting the way you just said it because it triggered that thought. Yeah, absolutely. And, uh, you know, this is something I haven't seen uh, many people explore uh, extensively and tell the story in a way that uh, has a, a very long tail of, uh, of technology flowing between boundaries and countries. And uh, because most often, you know, we in... Uh, uh, we just tend to focus on the last 50 years or maybe even the last 15 years because of uh, companies like SpaceX taking off and, and internet and social media tools and the generation gaps between people. All of the very historic information and going back to several decades and even millennia is uh, something that uh, is not very well communicated in uh, 
in the whole sector, I would say. Can you give, I mean, this is, this is interesting. Can you give a few other examples that come off the top of your head where you've seen this cross-border uh, cross border and cross-pollination of ideas? Yeah, absolutely. And uh, in fact, I was just reading a book uh, last uh, week, which piqued my interest. Uh, so, you know, one of the things that uh, early stage uh, rocketry uh, developers were experimenting on was actually uh, mail, because, uh, you know, if you had to post stuff and you had to carry stuff from one place to the other as uh, post, then, you know, there was not really much of technology. People use donkeys and in challenging geographies, you know, they may maybe use some rail if there was intensity. But, uh, you know, if, if you were looking at transporting in high, high elevation places, it could take a while. Uh, and, you know, if you would want to send it across the continent, it could take months, right? In the early days of uh, post between countries. So one of the things that experimenters in the, you know, 1930s uh, and early days were thinking that actually rockets are the best way of transporting mail because if you would have to send a, a, a post between New York and California, for example, maybe it would, it would take months at that point of time for it to reach. But then they thought, look, there's uh, this rockets that have an interesting potential and uh, I have this mail that I can send now and it, maybe it could reach there in a couple of hours instead of six months now. And I could get those responses back. And there was a huge community around rocket mail because airmail was an interesting phenomena because you, you would have airmail, right? So airmail yeah. started. In fact, also people didn't know this, that uh, the first uh, airmail stamp uh, kind of collection uh, for the first airmail flights actually began in India. So, wow. And, uh, uh, and this was, I think, uh, early 1920s or something, the first time the airmail was, uh, was carried. And uh, people thought genuinely at that point of time that airmail is going to be redundant in 10 or 15 years because airmail is still slower than rocket mail. And rocket <laughs> mail will be the thing. <laughs> It'll be the thing, you know, it is something that people will always uh, be flying these rockets from one to the other. And, and people has even started putting things like livestock. You know, there were pe people putting chicken in on rockets and flying them and seeing if that chicken reaches the other part of the world. They thought, you know, you could send uh, mail uh, when, you, when a ship is coming into a new region, let's say an island or a new, con new country, you have to dock the ship and then get the mail out and then you have to, uh, you know, exit the ship and then come back into the waters, right? So when people were saying, you know, it will take hours for us to dock there and then transport everything and come back and we're going to save some a lot of time and hours uh, if we could just fire fire a rocket out of, sh of a ship and then you know get the mail out and then we could just leave that port immediately right. yeah the, the, right? well and i'm also laughing because i sent through the u.s postal service and different services have troubles too i sent some two-day mail to california and it's two weeks later and it still has not arrived so <laughs> I'm, a, I'm seeing myself, <clears throat> is there a rocket that I could use in the future? That's it. So yeah, that's a, that's a cool way of looking at the expansion. So there was, I'm going to say there were, there were individuals trying to improve rocketry capabilities so that they could do this, even shipping from a, uh, a moving or a stationary on water platform. Is you're shipping from the ocean and you aim it towards the this, this side and what do you put up a flare? I don't know. If someone's waiting, they have to know that you're going to be shipping, sending them something. And then they go run and find it in the brush. 
Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And, you know, that's the interesting bit. Uh, that's, again, you know, a very, you know, not well-known story in the industry, right? Because uh, that's, a, that's a legacy that not really not many people know. In fact, all of that kind of history is captured in the philatelic societies because philatelics or the stamp collecting society had a huge thing about collecting rocket mail, uh, you know, stamps and mint which was flown on rockets and, you know, it was flown in different parts of the world. And people would say, this is the first time in the U.S. in some particular region that we are doing this, uh, you know, rocket mail. And then people would bid on it. And today, there's a whole community around people who buy and sell uh, rocket mail stamps and uh, because it's not so prevalent anymore. And it was from 100 years ago. The part of Project Moon Hut's platform, which I think you saw the video, I, I mention in there that we tend to know what ideas came from space. For example, we could talk about the boots on a plane that is directly a correlation to space industry or air filtration, water filtration, or the fire uh, fireman's apparatus, uh, their outfits or their tank, both space uh, components. But the, the uh, what is unknown to me uh, and I'm, I'm trying to find more and more examples, is those technologies that were born from people trying to get to space or involved in space that never made it, meaning they started a company in 1920 or they started one in 1950 or they worked for somebody in 1970. They might have worked for a JPL or European Space Agency or Japanese or, or Russian. And they ended up not creating anything, but they left that company and they went to another company or they started one, and they use those same exact principles to create a product that was really earthbound. It was a, a new mug uh, manufacturing technology, or you created a stapler because you understood the dynamics of uh, space fluid dynamics. And so this is an interesting take. My mind is racing of how do I find, or how do we find for Project Moon Hut, how do we find these really, really neat ideas or concepts or constructs or products or initiatives that drove the, that meet our everyday needs because of the way in which they were formed? Yeah, absolutely. And you can't deny that uh, some of these early inventors of uh, rocket mail were not, uh, you know, people of the legacy of uh, imagination of somebody like Avon Brown itself, because, you know, uh, some of the people who were involved, including, uh, include people like uh, Robert Godard, right? And he was briefly uh, involved with the rocket mail community and trying to experiment with the uh, rocket mail. But then he went on to do, of course, you know, bigger and brighter things. But, but, you know, these were a bunch of people who were at the very, very, very beginning of the technology curve. And that's an interesting thing because the technology curve begins and then there's a generation of early inventors and early experimenters who are doing really like garage related uh, work. And, you know, like really uh, they had no real support. And, you know, this, this book that I read uh, was from a guy who studied about uh, uh, such a guy, you know, one of the guys in India, for example, in the 1930s, experimenting on uh, these kinds of rockets and trying to do rocket mail out of India. And he was the only guy from India trying to do that in the 1930s. And he was having relationships by, by mail with uh, you know, people in the US, people in uh, Europe who are trying to do uh, same, you know, building rockets to see air mail. And, and a lot of them had this idea that uh, uh, 
all of this would culminate into people going into space and people uh, and and people having to get getting to space and this is the birth of the technology and you know that's where uh, the this is like a generation before the superstar of uh, space right the superstar of space including you know it could be one of one brown or all the others the soup and the other astronauts for example Here's a here's a here's a wonderment or a uh, an interesting concept. You you threw out this word. You said garage related work, and I said to myself, "Who created the first garage?" Like, <laughs> I mean, we we talk about garage related work. There actually is a link that says who created the first garage because it's overhead door. But there there was someone who actually created a garage. So even yeah. that is a a relic of a time that was not 200 years ago. It's a, it's more current. So okay, cool. So what else on the legacy of traditional space would you like to tie in? This was fascinating. This was this this really made my mind race. What else did you? Uh, sure. So go ahead. So uh, essentially, uh, what I was trying to say is that look. Uh, in my opinion at least i don't know about uh, many others but at least in my opinion we really haven't uh, yet exited this mindset of uh, space is still a heavily military technology and uh, and the way commerce is happening in space is still kind of uh, stuck in the in the age old kind of military era because militaries are still spending the most amount of money in space so for example if you i think look at the us uh, space budgets for example nasa gets maybe i think 18 billion dollars maybe if i'm correct and you know the the military spending in space is at least you know two or three times more than the civilian space budget really uh, and it yeah 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 okay and uh, if you look at that even in other countries it's the same you know for example i think most of russian program is just military uh, with a little bit of civilian integration into all of it but essentially most of russian military program I mean, its program is mostly military and then a little bit of civilian stuff and you know that is where i also wanted to plug in a little bit about you know how india took a different approach um, because uh, out of all of this in the, the 1960s India was one of the only countries in the world that uh, for the first time took a civilian approach to a space agency until India came up with the idea in the 1960s that there could be a purely civilian uh, you know orientation to doing space no country in the world thought of it as a purely civilian activity so uh, you know one of the reasons maybe also because uh, you know this was uh, something that uh, was leadership by the you know father of the indian space uh, program vikram sarabhai who said you know uh, essentially he looked at space as the tool of of leapfrogging communities of people using technology and making them leapfrog over generations and using space as a means of technology or a base of technology to providing people opportunity and increasing productivity of all of that so and that was visionary for that time and in fact uh, i've talked to a lot of people for example who collaborated with him and most people who are who his collaborators from the west thought he was just bullshitting them because he you know was trying to get access to some of the technology or so on but then you see that uh, a lot of the reality in the indian space program today the way it's uh, you know uh, 
kind of fo the foundations were built over the last 50 years has proven his word to be right because uh, today you can see that you know india is the first country in the world to reach uh, mars in its first attempt uh, successfully and so that's the kind of trajectory i think uh, it goes back where you say civilian orientation uh, makes in 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 my opinion that's a core part of uh, inclusivity the topic that we were talking about yeah. because essentially if you involve uh, the normal you know person on the street and you say to the normal person on the street in a way that look today you're standing here you might just have a smartphone with you or you might have whatever xyz with you or you may not have something with you as well but then if you can tell him that look there are 20 assets up in the sky that is looking after you being productive and uh, is helping you be pro to be to more money or to be more productive or contribute to the environment or you know contribute to the society and to kind of uh, you know make that happen for each and every individual on the earth is something that can make space more inclusive rather than just putting you know space in the hands of militaries i think when you think of project moonat and one of the um narratives and i know you're in germany right i think you're in germany right now the there's a guy in berlin who had said to me well, good friend we he had said when we look at the earth we tend to look at the earth in the construct of that's where we sell and work and one of the initiatives for project moonhut is we call it mirth we live within the moon and earth the space that circles all the way around is the moon and the earth and we will eventually expand that perspective that we're not just on earth that anything that happens between moon and earth which could be space or on the moon is uh is part of our existence and this is what you're saying the smartphone we look up and we say well that's in space with a satellite but we could be saying oh no no that's part of the ecosystem of mirth which is the interconnectivity between this the earth and space so yeah, yeah. amazing yeah yeah absolutely and uh, you know so that's uh, is also the way uh, you know that makes space a little bit unsexy you know so and uh, unfortunately like you know a lot of unsexy things make people productive and a lot of unsexy things make and uh, uh, and contribute to the society right but uh, but you know that's where i think uh, i differ from a, a lot of the traditional kind of uh, hip hip kind of views uh, that that exist uh, but also you know it is also about uh, making access uh, to the last individual in the last mile and in the last kind of least productive kind of countries because you know imagine a country of the size of india you have 600000 plus uh, villages and uh, of course you know the space can be a game changer where because you could easily set up uh, you know communication networks you could easily set up navigation networks and the bigger the size of a country is the bigger the size of a geography is especially for a country for example of the size of us china you know india russia why are these players so big in spaces because space gives you that footprint it gives you that kind of uh, you know uh, capability to cover massive amounts of ground and to provide services to the last miles of people even in the least connected communities in your country 
right? And those are the perspectives, right? So you don't see many European countries, for example, you know, doing the same way or providing the same kind of services as you know, the US would do or China would do or in India would do because they are inherently small and you know, the, the communities live in smaller geographies and they're hyper-connected communities and you can lay cables between them and you know, be more efficient or, uh, and you know, so on. So I mean, a typical example could also be a country like Singapore, right? You, know, you have uh, basically mm-hmm. a, st- a country that stones throw away your, your borders end and, uh, you know, you can lay fiber there in, uh, I don't know, six months time in the entire country and then connect people and you can do a lot of different things there. But then, you know, you can contrast that with something of the size of India or the US. And that's where I think satellites and space hold a lot of promise to all of us because you can tell all those people there that, you know, space is kind of making you more productive in all of this. And, uh, you know, it's, uh, it's creating the fuel for your uh, lives. That's uh, the, I just wrote philosophy. It's, uh, or a psychological perspective next to that comment that you're doing this with the same type of services. That's an interesting dynamic that your solutions to challenges because of scale, size, means that you have to create bigger solutions. And that bigger solution, for example, as you mentioned in any of the countries in Europe, whether it be uh, Luxembourg being tiny, Lithuania, Estonia, Latvia, Hungary, all the way to France, um, UK, they don't have to think at the same scale to service. And that creates a countrywide mindset that probably is part of the spillage over into investments. Uh, uh, education that possibly do limit the expansiveness thinking. And the only one I can kind of think of that's opposite would be Israel. And Israel has a, uh, a space program and uh, offer Lapid who works with us in Project Moon Hut. Uh, he was, I think he's credited, he doesn't say it, with putting up most of the satellites in the early stages of all of, uh, of Israel on a military basis because they had to cover large ground of surveillance uh, all yep. of the Middle East. So that's actually very cool. And it, it, it lends itself to a lot of other thinking possibilities on a global scale. Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, what makes the case for space, you know, uh, Dr. Robert Zubrin talks about the case of Mars and, uh, and so on. So what also makes the case for space for somebody like who's coming from a developing world and, you know, comes from an average Indian family is the way you could sell space to me, an average Indian middle class family is not by saying uh, you, you will take some rich people to space and have them live there, or you would have my military spending all my tax money and putting up satellites to just shoot missiles to other countries and so on. I think what would sell me as a middle-class, you know, normal Indian family would be if you, you would say, you know, we are using all of this assets to make your generation of kids more productive and, uh, and, and, you know, making that uh, part of that space is almost like a cell phone. 
you know, the whole cell phone revolution, the smartphone revolution, it changed countries like India and, you know, several African countries, right? Because you have access to information, you have access to being more productive, being more, you know, uh, getting more employment. And there's this whole revolution that uh, smartphones and internet connectivity and everything did to societies in developing countries. And if you could think of something in a future where you're making space is one of the tools that is making such a revolution in some of these countries. Think of the impact that that would create for backing uh, exploration activities or, you know, risky ventures that states could then go out and do more easily. You would never, you know, then the society would never question uh, a decision by a politician or uh, you would not have political parties you know, kind of debating each other as to why we would be, you are spending more, so much money into like space exploration or something, because essentially you have convinced your public that this is important. Just so you know, uh, Narian, you have just been recruited onto Project Muna to help in one area that I feel I'm deficient to help us to be able to define this one aspect we've done it in many others but this one area i'd really like to explore with you because i think it's a brilliant brilliant approach that being a westerner growing up in the united states even though i've worked all over the world i i i love that angle so just so you know you've been recruited <laughs> <laughs> thank you i'm happy to help uh so uh anything else on tra uh, tra traditional space Ready to move uh, on to aviation. You have any more points? Yeah, I think we could, uh, you know, move further because there's some things that inter overlap okay. between them. So it'll it'll be a good. So chat let's here. move into the closeness of aviation. Uh, looking at the closeness of industry and aviation, and specifically. Yes. So uh, what I wanted to bring up here is, uh, of course, you know, aviation with the first uh, experimental aircrafts going into the late 1800s and the first flights in the 1900s, early 1900s. Uh, there was, again, an interest in uh, militaries, by militaries in all of this. Essentially, there is a very close relationship between early experimenters of aircrafts and early experimenters of, uh, you know, rocketry, being both amateurs and, you know, inventors trying to realize a particular piece of technology after which governments and states looking at the potential of that for militaries and funding a lot of them and making sure that corporations and you know big companies realize real capabilities that can be used by militaries uh, in warfare and that could be also seen as a relationship in in, in aircraft and in space right where uh, you know, a lot of the military aircrafts uh, were uh, funded and military aircraft uh, projects were funded and realized and, you know, deployed in various parts of the world very independently. And there's a very good relationship possibly that you could draw with how space programs have been conducted between uh, the early 1950s to, you know, even now, and then how military aircraft programs and military programs in Asia began and how they've been running between, you know, the early 1920s until the late uh, 1960s or 70s. There could be a, an extremely good coin, uh, you know, coincidence between how the two sectors work. And why I bring that up is because after the 1940s, when the World War II ended, you had more 
military pilots possibly than commercial pilots. There was no commercial aviation at, at not really so evident because aircrafts were not that reliable to fly between uh, the Atlantic or you know, between such large distances especially if you had civilians on board and you know military aircraft in fact even military aircraft hardly made it even the the bomber that uh, took the nuclear web you know the the bomb to to hiroshima and nagasaki from the us had to land in india to refuel before going on its way to 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 japan to drop the bombs really so wow yes not not yeah. that it was a great thing that we dropped the bomb the united states dropped the bomb i said we i didn't i wasn't part of it but it had to <laughs> so it went it went, it circumvented the world going over. It went eastbound from the United States. It did not go westbound from the United States. Yes, and there was a separate uh, airfield that was specially built, uh, you know, close to Calcutta in the eastern northeast part of India, an airstrip that was built just for these, this aircraft to land and refuel. Wow. Didn't know that. Okay. Yeah, so... Uh, so, you know, so that's uh, at that point in time, you had these, uh, you had no commercial airliners, right? So essentially what I'm trying to say is that when the World War II ended, you had a bunch of military pilots who were out of job. And the one thing that you saw is aircrafts uh, had matured in terms of technology. And the first thing that you could try to do is to offer uh, service to people who could fly between the Atlantic for the first time. And guess who were they if they were business people who could afford the flight, they could afford to pay a lot more than getting on a ship because they saved time. Yeah. They saved time to get on board. And, you know, the first uh, flights, I just, just uh, seeing some of the pictures from the earliest, uh, you know, business airlines, and they were all made in, the seats were made in wood, carved in wood <laughs> and installed in air, uh, inside of aircrafts. And, you know, people would sit there and smoke and, you know, uh, have this no, not real weather control inside. And, and so on. So that's how uh, messy the aviation world was at uh, the end of the war. And people said, you know, business travelers can not afford to stay on ships between, uh, you know, for months to travel between the Atlantic and we can afford to pay a lot more. And, you know, we could have. And so the early aircrafts that uh, carried people uh, were mostly only business people who could afford all of it. And then you could see that industry mature over 60 years of time, where today you can book a, a Ryanair flight between uh, Berlin and Israel. I went to, to and fro was 30 euros. Wow. <laughs> Ryanair just comes out, has prices that are beyond amazing. <laughs> <laughs> right? So, so, you know, that's the cycle of the industry that, uh, that I think space can take a lot of inspiration from because very similar to the space world, the aviation world has very stringent requirements on performance of hardware and software and safety, right? You're carrying so many people on a daily basis, millions of people between airports and you know, millions of objects flying around each day, a continuous operation between one airport to the other, continuous operation of crew, systems, you know, ground equipment, just so many things, so many moving parts. And if you would have said to some of these inventors in the early days of aircraft that this will be the picture of the aviation world in 2020, you know, if you went back to 1900 and said, this is the picture that you are looking at in 2020, people would have said, you're out of your mind. 
Yeah, I, I think I'm just going to add in here. There's one thing about the space and the aviation industry that has always amazed me. It is the follow through from any type of accident, even if it doesn't result in death, even if it comes down with a, a wheel that doesn't deploy. When anything happens around the world, there is a complete investigation as to why that, uh, that situation happened. And I've got 20, 28 hours in a warrior plane learning to fly. And I, I was always fascinated because when you have a car accident, someone comes and takes a report. But in a military, in an airplane, uh, airplane accident, it's not a report. It is an investigation. How did it happen? What went wrong? Was it human error? Was it technological error? Did they get maintenance in time? Uh, were they communicating with the tower? On and on and on and on. So it's an amazing difference. Yeah, absolutely. And that's uh, one of the ways that you could make space, uh, you know, more resilient, more safe, uh, more, uh, you know, uh, reliable. Uh, you know, the, the perception of space would change. Uh, you know, nobody, none of us who get on a flight uh, between any part of the world today, uh, or most people, don't really think that they will die when they get on the aircraft. Right? There are some. So, there are some people who think there are people. I mean, they're, they're, I, I've been next to them on a plane, and let me tell you, <laughs> you are talking. I'm thinking of this one woman. She saw that it was a high wing, and the the wheel came uh, went up, and she panicked. Do they go up? Do they stay up? Uh, yeah, we don't fly with them down. She was terrified that they would not come down again. Oh, <laughs> <laughs> yeah so so you know that's uh, uh that that i think is also not again you know very well uh discussed or communicated in uh, in the space world because we believe you know we are this exclusive bunch of industry which is has to do with a lot of uh, interesting new technology and uh, a lot of things and and aviation is also at the cusp of a lot of interesting technology, a lot of complicated technology, and they've made all of that so simple and boring over the hundred years. Imagine this, right? Parts that that carry Donald Trump are made in India today. Yeah, <laughs> and uh, so. And that's uh, in the aviation world, and they've gone from you know having um, uh, such high quality standards and control, and you know like IP controls, so that even files of designs, if it leaked between uh, you know offices, they could get into jails because this is highly controlled IP and highly controlled environments, and and you know this all of this is national security. And today, you know you have such a massive integration of supply chains, and. You know, most often, you know, when I work in supply chains, right? So the biggest difference between the aviation supply chain and the space supply chain is this, David. Aviation supply chain most often procures stuff at dollar per kilogram. Yeah. Imagine that. Yeah. You, if you would be selling uh, aluminum, you know, composite uh, uh, plates <laughs> to an aircraft today, right? <laughs> And so that's the difference. So I have had a lot of chat with vendors in the space sector who says our technology is brilliant for the aircraft. It's, we have composite you know, structures that can go into aircrafts and, and they, they can do fascinating things and they can reduce the weight of the aircraft by 50% and, and all of this. But then they go to the aviation world, try to sell them on that. And then they say, how much does this cost per kilogram? 
is the, <laughs> is the question. The uh, I do the. It was Alan Mullally, I believe, who took over Ford when he was first looking to take over Ford. Someone, uh, someone didn't, some people didn't want him to do it. And they asked the question about the airline industry is so different, for example, than the automotive industry. And he looked at them and he said, well, let's, let me look at this way. I ran an aviation company and we had 35,000 moving parts and the automotive industry had 5,000. However, I had to keep the people up in the air, couldn't bring them in for services more or less, where you could just pull over on the side of the road. And that's not exactly the, the quote, but it's there's such complexity to the safety and security of keeping someone up in the air that the, the correlation I can see now, we can look at space, I'm assuming we look at space and aviation and probably have an equivalent type of uh, exponential numerical number to do that. So 5,000 is to 35,000, 35,000 is to 100,000. Yeah, absolutely. And the most interesting part of all of this is also the cost per person, right? Because I bet that, you know, the cost per person in the early 1950s of these business travelers going, you know, between New York and, uh, and uh, you know, Berlin, for example, adjusted to today's uh, money, would cost a lot of money considering the same flight that as today. So that would have seen, you know, today you can fly between Berlin and New York for maybe 400 euros return. Yeah, yes. And if we, even if you took the business class, which is about 6,000 euros or 5,000 euros or somewhere in there, then you'd still have that, that huge differential. Yeah, I wanted to. I wanted to swing back. You said at one point, simple and boring technologies that the airline industry is approaching that are transformational. Do you have a, an example or two of that that you know of that's happening, even possibly as a convergence of space and aviation? Uh, not a space and aviation. One thing that comes to my mind, uh, I'm sorry, I go back to India quite often because that's I okay. Yeah. That I, I, I love, I love that you are. So don't apologize. I love that you're bringing in, and we try to do this in the program is to bring a global, global perspective because this is, we are on one, one earth. So I love it. Go back to India whenever you need to go wherever you'd like to. Sure. So you know, uh, I go back to my younger days uh, in India because uh, uh, remember my parents telling me when I was growing up that I was uh, a few months old when uh, they got me onto a flight and I can't remember any of it. Uh, and that was the only flight that I remember that my uh, parents took in their lives until, uh, you know, I became uh, more than 25 years old. Uh, so for the first 25 years of my life, I had uh, you know, stepped into just, let's say, one flight. Uh, and that's because that was a vanity that uh, that occurred because uh, my parents just thought it would be a one nice thing to do uh, just to experience how it would be to fly. And uh, that was us treating, our, you know, the airline industry like, uh, uh, you know, visiting uh, Universal Studios or Disney, yeah, Disney World. It was an entertaining experience. You did it as a, as, exactly. wow, let's go on a ride. <laughs> okay, everybody. <laughs> right? So, uh, so why I bring that up is because, 
you know, an established industry there is if you can have that people, you know, use it as a routine service, right? So today in India, you are looking at a projected, I think, about 400 airports that will be operational in the next, uh, you know, 10 years or so. And uh, the highest number of orders coming to Airbus, uh, you know, and Boeing uh, in the entire world are from airlines that are operating in India. That is because... India has the most number of first-time airline travelers in the world, right? And yeah. that number is growing at over 10%, I think, uh, over 10% year-on-year growth for the last 10 years or so, I think. So the reason why I bring that up is because, you know, that's, that is what you want to see in a sector that is growing and it involves complicated technology, complicated you know, the supply chains, complicated, uh, you know, mechanisms to work. And if you make all of that kind of boring and make people say that, you know, we've made all of that boring because we are making you productive in doing all of this, then you see the uptake in the market and you see, you know, there's, you know, supply chain dynamics that act on it and price pressures and market pressure, and, you know, governments pulling out of it and markets taking control of all, all of it. And so those are things that we have to see in space to mature. I agree with you. Okay, cool. Uh, any other correlations or ties between aviation and the space industry? I think it's also about, uh, you know, how you could uh, innovate on services and how you could bring up a lot of things. So, uh, you know, you, you, you have such uh, amounts of, uh, you know, service innovation, be it uh, baggage handling or, you know, be it uh, even airline and food, for example, how you manage food on the airline. Uh, you know, not, uh, I think not many people know that if you had the same food that is served in an airline, but on the ground, uh, it would taste more salty. Oh, no, I didn't know that. Yeah, because, you know, the sense of, uh, 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 you know, the, the taste buds, they, the perception of the taste bud change of human beings once you're on the ground and, and you're up in the, in the air at that height. So airline food is normally optimized to have a little bit more salt uh, because the human uh, you know, tendency of when flying in the air, the tendency is that you know, you, you, your taste buds kind of change. And so norm, normally most airline food has more salt if you taste it on the ground. Well, the good, there's, a, there's a positive to that is the inclusion of additional salt uh, a, in the human body means the holding on of water. So you have less, you can keep, I don't know if you'd be more hydrated, but you would have more water in your system. It's not a diuretic. It doesn't make you go to the bathroom. It actually makes you retain water. And retaining water is something that you need to do while in space, at least in the current aircrafts. So that's, yep. a, there might be a positive side to that. Okay. Yeah. Yep. And also, there's also other operational bits, right? So because especially, for example, you had this whole challenge at a particular piece of time where, you know, two, as the number of aircraft started increasing up in the air, you had airline collisions, mid-air aircraft collisions, yeah. right? And nobody imagined that we would have mid-air aircraft collisions because airlines were a vanity, Yes. You had one aircraft flying here and there and say, we could see this coming from a mile and you, you, know, you don't need all this sort of, sort of traffic control and so on. And you had then technology come into play where you could see two aircraft communicate between each other regardless of the pilot 
you know, knowing it's there because there were the warning systems came up and the innovation and the management and cooperation between countries so that such warning systems come into play. And, you know, now I think even algorithms are set in a way that uh, the two aircraft decide that one goes up and the other goes down. So, uh, so they, they so communicate, they communicate separately from the ground and the aircraft to make sure through the system that they keep their uh, altitude distance. Yeah, exactly. And they tell one pilot to go up and then the other pilot, for example, to go, to go down. So, uh, so, you know, a lot of this has uh, tend to, I think, you know, there could be a correlation to how we manage space traffic, right? So today we have this phenomena where nobody is really, you know, in charge. We've seen a couple of, you know, collisions in space. We've seen, uh, you know, uh, we've seen number of threats that uh, objects or people are saying there are, you know, potential threats to the space station and so on. So we're again, you know, in the early days of all of that, uh, that the aviation industry has solved extremely effectively and we could learn again. That's cool. We ju I just did a, a podcast with uh, Morbid, Morbi um, Ja on, yeah. uh, I don't know if you know him. He's, um, we did it on space environmentalism and he had some yeah. really cool thoughts about or discussion about how managing those expectations in space. So yeah, very cool. Okay. Yeah, so uh, Moriba is a good friend of mine, so I know him quite well. He's a he excellent. I wasn't sure where we were going to go, just like any interview. And I've got to tell you, he really, really delivered. And we focused on the space environmentalism. I told him that's where I wanted to go because I think it gives a very big picture to the entire uh, ecosystem of Mirth and what we have to be able to handle. So this is a perfect tie-in. I love it. Okay. Uh, anything else, or do you want to go on to the old space? Uh, what is new space in old space? Yeah, let's uh, go to the next one. Okay. So we're talking now about uh, new space in old space countries, is what I, you know, thought about, and um, why I, you know, tell that is because uh, legacy institutions ask for it to be kept up. So for example, right, if you say that, uh, you know, we have uh, this institution that is uh, building rockets for, you know, military, and you know, you've uh, done that for 50 years, then, you know, you will budget and you will come up with things that, uh, you know, keeps the institution going. And the institution kind of, you know, nobody wants to leave a legacy of things. So if you say, you know, this is a military unit that's been building aircraft, you know, space satellites for so many decades, and then you just find new ways and new programs and new technology, and you kind of start fueling all of that. And in my perspective, a lot of the, you know, uh, space countries, the early space countries that are out there uh, have to deal with it. Uh, and, you know, that's where I think... Um, uh, you know, the, the new space world is in a fix because essentially the, the money, as I said, you know, is still heavily allocated to the military programs. And essentially the new space community, which people tend to think, uh, you know, wants to be privately funded, wants to have private businesses uh, and, you know, pr private consumers as their 
uh, you know, cons- as their uh, market, essentially will have to then look at ways in which it could work with the traditional legacy establishments to survive. And that, I think, is, you know, what you see happening in the U.S. extremely quite a lot because you have most U.S. companies that are startups today that are dependent heavily on, you know, military space contracts. And uh, and essentially, you know, they, they try to do that. I'm nothing wrong with it in my perspective, but, you know, that's the way you think you can survive because that's the way you think you can uh, get some money to stay alive while you realize the piece of technology or you realize the piece of, you know, service that you, that you come up with. Which is Elon Musk's model. He, not a completely military, but his model has been to leverage the U.S. government in funding. Yeah, absolutely. And you could see that even with uh, companies like uh, Planet, for example, right? Yeah. Uh, uh, you, you look at them and then they say we are uh, democratizing access to you know, satellite imagery and XYZ uh, on one end. And on the other side, you can see them uh, getting uh, National Geospatial Agency contracts and DOD contracts. So you can see that. Uh, uh, that. But then what I don't really like is uh, if if you say that it's it's fine you could be you could be that but then you could not you shouldn't be like professing to the world that uh, you know what we are doing is the right thing always so because i say that because i think uh, two or three years ago two years ago maybe the uh, you know the indian uh, establishment the indian military conducted an anti satellite weapon uh, yes. test and they you know shot down their own weapon and you know a company <laughs> like i think a company like planet i think put out a statement saying we are for you know space sustainability or something like that uh, and uh, and here they and are here they are being in the military and another angle that's kind of exactly weird. yeah and and I don't know if you know Will Marshall. I think that's the one I'd like to get on the show. So I'm just going to toss that out there. If you know Will, I'd like to get one of the Planet guys on. I've spoken for Planet, but I would like to, I've been in their facilities and I've spoken there. But I'd like to get them on just a, a side note. So the when when uh, around the world, if you were to put a percentage on how much of space. Old space, uh, old space versus new space is military supported. I mean, Russia has one or two or three private space companies. That's it. Everything is within the infrastructure of the military apparatus. How much is separated and not exclusively one versus the other? Uh, the number, I think, is uh, in the extremely low front. I would say less than 10%, to be very honest, David. In my perspective, I think uh, most companies in the world, if you look deep down in their supply chains and the way they are conducting uh, business, and they would want to have you know, militaries and, and governments uh, uh, you know, as their customers because that's the safest customer that you can have. That's a customer that you can uh, you know, always rely on. And, uh, and unfortunately, that is because, as I said, the integration of the services is, uh, you know, military spending all of this, but not really the, the average Joe uh, getting any services uh, from space as of yet. That's not the uh, future that uh, we've stepped into yet. And um, uh, yeah, I mean, uh, that, that is a change. I think the step function change that we have to do and we have to see happening. And uh, I guess, you know, many of the people are using 
this format of doing business to probably probably step in to to that future so it's it's kind of a uh, maybe there's a bad way to say it i'm trying to come up with a better way but it's like playing with the devil when you're in the sp- when you get into the space industry when you enter you say i need a stable customer but i want to be new space considered i want to be a new space company however i need stability on my financial back end so I'm going to just play with them a little bit. But the reality is when you start playing in their sandbox, you are in their sandbox. Yeah, and uh, you see that uh, quite a lot. In fact, uh, you know, one of the things that, uh, you know, for example, we at SatSearch, we handle uh, the supply chain, you know, uh, world, right? So, and you can see some of the US, you know, companies, the new space companies, we get requests. Let's say a European engineer is requesting for some, quotation for a particular piece of technology that a US company that is already being contracted by a US, US military agency or the US Air Force to, you know, to develop that or to be used there is, you know, so traditionally, a startup will be excited to receive an email saying, oh, there's somebody on the other side of the world who's looking to buy my product, even <laughs> if I'm new. Right. And in this case, and in this case, you will get no response because they are like, I have the US government as my customer, maybe. And why the hell do I need somebody else? Like, you know, or they may be contract restrictions because that that piece of technology may be said as exclusive to the US borders or or some other reason. But people will not tell that and they will not even respond to your email. And I can, we we filed a patent that we ended up securing. It was um, what is it? It's decision making based upon programmatic and algorithmic analysis, and we use drone and space technology within our patent. And oh my God, we saw we saw things on our patent we've never seen before: letters and numbers and character. And we were able to figure out this was the U.S. military looking at what we were filing. So yeah, it does change the equation. Yeah, and you know, so that's where I think the uh, the again, you know, uh, going back to even the aviation world and so on. So, you you normally like you have now two established players, for example, building aircraft, right? So you have Boeing and Airbus building aircraft, and there is a bunch of airlines that don't care about building their own aircraft, and they say we have these two providers who have come up with the format, and we know that their vehicles are interesting and they are stable and they're safe and everything else. And I am an airline. I am a Ryanair. I'm not going to create my own aircraft and fly the customers because it's more profitable to me. I know that I'm, I am going to be good at carrying people and optimizing, uh, you know, passage of goods and people. And that's my function in the industry, right? So you have the airline settling into all of that after a hundred years of innovation and in the space sector, however, we have companies that will say, I will build the you know, satellite and I'll be the, build the service on top of the satellite and I'll build the product on top of the service. <laughs> yep. Right? So, so they're, they're, uh, building their own, they're building their own ecosystem from beginning. Exactly. Yeah. So, uh, so that's, you know, again, you know, it's, it's, it's kind of very childish to think about space as a sector when you compare that with other sectors. And that, that what you just said was the original meeting that I had. And I don't know if you know Bruce Pittman. I'm assuming you've met Bruce. Bruce yeah. Pittman in 
California at Scratch, where I said, let me just show you the future of the space industry. And I was not a space person. I'm still not a space person. But I, I outlined and I said, the challenge that we have is we don't have the foresight into the entire ecosystem. So when I used the Caterpillar, I said, Caterpillar can't put $14 billion into space mining, uh, any type of equipment. But what if somebody else built this and someone who built that? And then I explained the technology behind computational social science and AI and modeling and networking and how we can mitigate risk by saying, no, no, you just put 200 million into developing this technology for space mining. And we'll show you 10 customers that will buy that on Earth and in space. Therefore, their cost mitigation is so much lower. But then we take those 10 companies and we show them how they can be part of the ecosystem. And to to give transparency to the 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 build out is the challenge for the space industry is what I had articulated that this right now every many institutions and we'll call SpaceX and Bezos is blue, they're building their entire supply chain from beginning to end. And that's costly and challenging. Yeah, and uh, it kind of makes it an exclusive club or a monopoly at the end. And uh, which may not uh, transform the the ability to you know as I said to reach the last mile to a great extent, right? Because you see, you know, I think yesterday on Space News there was already a, a news that Starlink uh, is uh, being contracted by the U.S. Army, I think, to experiment uh, the usage of Starlink for their uh, you know communication links. Yeah. Right. And so you see already, you know, the the customer being the government coming into play there again. Uh, And so my sense of all of this is this is a transition phase of uh, the entire space industry where unfortunately, uh, because we don't have the supply chains and integration of space as a part of real economy, real productivity of people yet, we have to, you know, undertake ventures and undertake business with governments in such models. And we're forced to do that because we have not yet as a collective industry figured out how do we integrate space that makes normal people more productive yet. And there's one thing that, uh, you know, that has established otherwise, which is the direct to home television industry, which makes the most amount of money in the space industry and is kind of independent. Uh, that's the only, you know, sector where you see that the, the government is out of the business there. You know, the government does not want to be in the business of what you and I want to watch on television. Yeah. So So, so can I, uh, I'd like your perspective on how you perceive the geopolitical pandemic and non-pandemic based nationalism development harming or um, benefiting the space industry? I think you get the question. Yeah, 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 absolutely. I mean, the thing is on one hand there, I mean, there's a middle ground to this because I think you can't say, you can't take sides here because there are positive and negatives for both the ones. The positive of course is that you know, politicians who don't understand technology or all these kinds of uh, life cycles of technology tend to believe that space is uh, 
a very important domain. It's a very interesting domain and it's a military domain and it's a national security domain. And those are very, the, the words are very interesting for them. And, you know, the, the understanding of that is very simple and for them and they believe in it and they will fund it. So that's the baseline of it. And then there's the part of gold there that people are trying to get, including the big corporations or even small companies, right? So, and, and that I think is a narrative that, uh, you know, as I said, legacy institutions we have created and we have maintained because, you know, we know that uh, the pot of gold is there to, to be grabbed there. And if we can uh, create more threat uh, or, you know, fuel other events that are out there and create more opportunity to look, to make space look like a tool that can aid, you know, uh, kind of alleviating this or supporting some of the other geopolitical scenes, then the pot of gold there becomes big uh, and keeps becoming bigger and bigger and bigger, right? And that's a push there of making that pot of gold bigger purely on the geopolitical and, and the military side of uh, operations, but that will never make space an industry, in my opinion. And that's, yeah, that's the risk, my take, and that's why I asked the question, was immediately when you said it, I said, the risk structure for a nationalistic approach to space development pushes further the military apparatus into whatever technologies that country has, because that's its own leveraging point, where when it's a global initiative, when it's a global connective uh, open source, open capability uh, ecosystem, you end up driving a different type of uh, political agenda. Absolutely. And I can give you an example from the another industry here. Uh, so, you know, when uh, GE, uh, General Electric, the American company came up with the the first mobile electrocardiograms, essentially uh, electrocardiograms that uh, doctors can carry to rural America uh, to test people there using mobile ECGs. The first uh, units were, I think, more than $10,000 each for every electrocardiogram, right? And that's something that maybe some of the U.S. Uh, you know, doctors could afford based on some you know, U.S. government subsidy or something like that. But if GE had to establish a market for that in a developing country like India or China or, you know, Africa back then, you would not sell, you know, electrocardiograms that are mobile at $10,000 a piece in India. You know? right. So, right. So what GE did back then is they took the electrocardiogram and they brought that piece of technology that they built uh, for the US and you know put that together and they brought the IPs and and the whole construct of the product to India to Bangalore where they come from where it, you know today there are 15,000 G engineers working there yeah. uh, and they brought it there and they said you know what guys these are the foundation IPs around all of this why don't you you know have a free and free hand in innovating in a way that this makes sense for your local market and guess what happened to that? The $10,000 piece became $1,000. I was just going to say two, but yeah, it, it was a factorial <laughs> of 10x. Yeah. Uh, and the sales picked up in Africa, you know, it, it picked up in India and, you know, so. And that's, so that's, a, that's, that's, a, that's a little bit of a, a combination of Jugad tied into the implication of innovation. 
And I think that would be the way, and Jugad would probably be one of those areas in which to think differently. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And so that's the thing, right? Because any product or a service uh, can hardly be kind of replicated in its true sense everywhere around the world without taking into account the local intricacies that include local economy, local tradition, culture, language, other things, right? That go into all of it. Even for example, uh, some, you know, the most established industry in the world, maybe the food industry, right? McDonald's, when it had to come to India, it had to stop selling, uh, you know, beef burgers and hamburgers and had to make two by adding, you know, uh, uh, chili powder into fries. Yeah. So there's uh, all of that. And, you know, so that's, uh, uh, that's, that's a bit of learnings from a lot of different other industries. And we haven't seen all of that uh, in space yet. We're going to make it happen, right? <laughs> that's what we're working on. Okay. Uh, I, I, perfect. These are, these are fantastic examples. And I, I do appreciate your, I do appreciate the, the depth of knowledge you have in these categories, which I absolutely love. They're, they're, they're exciting and interesting. So yeah, the geopolitical side is one of the challenges that I'm seeing or have a challenge with because my, my take, this is uh, Project Moon Hut's original conception was that Project Moon Hut is neutral. We want a global participation in a global initiative to ch improve how we live on Earth for all species, at the same time addressing several categories of challenges that are global challenges with the desired outcome of just getting us to the moon. The, so the, this whole nationalism feeling is will alter the trajectory and possibly the timelines. So I'm wrestling with how to get around that. Yeah, and the, one of the, again, you know, interesting stories, I think, from what I read a few years back, uh, I don't know how true it is, is uh, uh, one argument that people, you know, say that uh, U.S. intentionally hold, hold it out, uh, you know, held out, uh, not flying the first satellite up in space uh, is, you know, people, there is speculation around this that they said that, uh, Nobody knew if uh, everybody knew that if you had an unauthorized aircraft flying over your territory, you could shoot it down, right? Yeah. And yeah. Uh, nobody knew if there was an unauthorized satellite that was flying over your space, you could shoot it down or you could call it war. Ah, yeah. Right. And so there's speculation around people saying the U.S. wanted Soviet Union to establish that precedent of flying an object over somebody else's territory uh, while you don't have authorization to go over the territory, but in space. Isn't there something that's going on in, uh, in the U.S. having to do with spy satellites or satellite and imagery and, and capabilities in space over uh, at least the United States? I think there's something in discussion right now as to what is considered uh, acceptable and what's not. I think that's a, an issue being addressed in the in the administration. Okay, so yeah, uh, so essentially, you know, that's a bit of uh, from the historical context. That is uh, also something that you could uh, look at as to we had to undergo that kind of barrier initially to to know that you know countries could fly over each other, you know, satellites flying over each other. 
and that's the same i would imagine with also aviation world because once uh, you know civilian aviation became uh, very uh, you know an industry by on its own then countries had to just come together and say you know we have a different routine for civilian and air, you know and military aircrafts and the 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 tracks in which they operate and the the ways they function are very different from each other it doesn't mean that uh, uh, you know there are no military aircrafts around there are of course military aircrafts and uh, many of them around and doing a lot of things but uh, the way the civilian aircraft world has taken over as an industry and the way it operates and the way it has uh, you know fueled for example icao which is the international uh, agency the un agencies that uh, that monitors everything around aviation and aviation rules and aviation uh, you know agreements between governments you have all of that uh, so people had to figure out if there was a child born on an aircraft which citizenship it would get oh yeah right so uh so so there's a lot of uh, kind of uh, interesting insight into uh, all of that and i think you know uh, uh, even an organization like the icao which dealt with you know intergovernmental uh, negotiation for airline operation for example right and civilian airline operation and rules for all of this and you know regulations for standards for all of this we haven't seen that kind of an institution in the space industry no we have not so that's a, another Uh, I've had conversations about what happens if someone is born in space where do they fall and we probably would adapt the traditional um, uh, airline rules and regulations what country did they originate from what country passport holders are they and it would become a, an interesting challenge years and years and years into the future if you were born in space your parents were born in space or your parents were born in space where do as a child are you and do you go back to that original country or do you lack the citizenship so that's a i i'm assuming the logic as humans are today would uh eventually transform yeah absolutely and so that uh, you know makes me to get into the, my next topic which is the new space and new countries yeah uh, so essentially you know uh, my phd was uh, around using satellite imagery in you know fundamentally other value chains and other industries in india and how do you make that uh, sector more productive so for example right let's take uh, you know the whole chain of there are about uh, 60% of india's employment come from agriculture yeah 600 and, uh, 640 million i think is it something like that 680 million yeah right yeah and although it only contributes to 15% of india's gdp yeah right? I, yeah i i actually wrote about this so yeah I, these are good numbers <laughs> yeah exactly right so uh, now when you look at the whole way the agriculture is operated in india um unfortunately the rules around the agriculture are very strict in india because uh, you know like a farmer is not allowed to sell or sell land and somebody who is not coming from a farming background cannot buy farming land in indian rules indian uh, you know the national rules of india don't allow such consolidation of land and it makes 
farmers hold land and essentially what happens you know because of this kind of rules is over the last uh, seven you know like three to five generations of independent india the land sizes have become smaller and smaller and smaller because you know your father would have 10 kids and you would have 10 acres of land and then you would die and then you would say this land is now divided among five sons so it's two acres yeah. each and then they yeah. would have five kids and then then you know now the average uh, farmland in india is like one acre or something like that or in terms of holdings right so which means that you cannot use precision agriculture there is a lot of problems there and it's unlike us where you have 10000 acres of land uh, you know who are held by one company or you know farming there and using technology to becoming you know to making more uh, these farmers more productive and not having more farmers instead of uh, instead having more productivity per farmer and having those original farming families to move into other industries and being productive there right so yeah point the point that i'm trying to raise is that because of all of this as well as the problems in accessing you know finance for example right so uh 30 uh, i mean 30 to 40% of lending in india is still from legacy uh, you know lenders who are in who are lending to farmers at interest rates of uh, 2 or 3% every month wow Uh, right and these are farmers who have no institutions uh, you know that they want to rely on and uh, you know they want to have some money at the beginning of the season to buy seeds and you know water their plants and you know put pesticides on them and harvest and give that uh, you know sell their crop and give the money back to the you know the the lender and so the challenge is that if you have 30 or 40% of farmers in india out of that massive number that you talked about depend on informal credit you have a market out there to bring them to the formal credit and the problem with the formal credit institutions is that they don't have any records on these uh, on these farmers to know how to you know undertake risk and how to how to classify them and if they to know if they are a risky proposition to invest in or not right so th- now, these are these are also i'm assuming the unbanked exactly yeah okay and the unbanked right. meaning for those who don't understand that this is where i'm breaking out for those who are unbanked are individuals who have not entered into the formal banking infrastructure that exists in the world today and so there's no transactional history there's no records and they are banking but they're using a shadow banking system borrowing from someone who borrows from a bank gets a million us dollar and then breaks it up but there's no record of those breakup transactions and therefore that person who's borrowing has no credit history so exactly right yep. so what i'm trying to say there is that look you know if you have to break that chain then you could uh, so one of the papers that i wrote in my phd was about uh, taking satellite imagery for the last 7 years and uh, uh, you know looking at the credit history of the farmer or developing a credit history of the farmer and uh, essentially you know by that if a farmer comes and says to the rural bank in india and says um, you know you i want to get a loan now from you and then they the, the bank just says now today for example okay you know like you we don't have you as a previous customer so you're a risky guy you go away or something but then no uh, if if the farm bank could then say okay like where is your land and this is you know if they could say if that guy would say my land is so and so and then the bank says okay now i have a I have a workflow here in my banking system that uses satellite imagery from the last 7 years 
to know and I know where your land is and I can tell you how productive you were in the last seven years. And if you are just, you know, kind of bullshitting me by coming for only this season to borrowing money and escaping from me. And I can then say, you know, this guy was so much productive and, you know, the yield was so much, the productivity, the, the crop area was so much. And then you could kind of build a risk index on that and say, okay, I see that you're an honest guy and I see the evidence from the last seven years that you have been productive. And so I'm going to invest in you and give you this money. I've got to say that is brilliant. That is absolutely brilliant. Because I mean, I'm my mind is racing, and I'm 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 inside of me. My, I'm saying, wow, taking satellite imagery, tying it to some form of uh, some form of algorithm, also possibly drone technology that might be integrated within it, and you can then look at a piece of land. You can see color. You could see spread. You could. You can even possibly watch machinery or humans uh, harvesting and how it changed, how during bad seasons and good seasons, you could tie in weather modifications and be able to equalize that yield from that year and then be able to give them a rating score to say you are a out of 100 or out of 50 or out of 10, whatever the number of numericalization is, you can come back and say, so you're a 77.3, which gives you the ability to borrow at X. I, I think that's absolutely brilliant. Yeah, and you could do that as well on the insurance side, right? So because if you say, you know, my crop was damaged, then you come and say, you know, my crop was damaged because of a, of a locust attack or of a, so because of a wildfire or, or a drought or something. You know, people can even easily say, you know, I have satellite imagery for your season and I can see that you've grown your crop or you've not grown your crop or your crop is affected because of X, Y, Z reason. And the whole crop insurance uh, infrastructure becomes automatable as well. So has anybody, I'm trying to be kind here in this question, have people in positions of authority taken this on as a mantra, as a means of facilitating banking Have they or insurance? Have you, have you introduced this to Nandan Alakani? Uh, has this gone through the chain of command so that this can be adopted? Yeah, I mean, there's a company in India called Satchure that is now trying to, you know, like build and roll out products around these. Uh, the other example that I can also give you is I talked to a company, again, based in uh, Bombay, in uh, Mumbai, in India, uh, that uh, uses satellite data from European satellites. And what they do is they have an app for fishermen and they charge fishermen, I think, something like, you know, three or four dollars a month or and what they do is they have an app where they have imagery or insights, uh, you know, refreshed on a daily basis on where fish is in, in the coast that they fish normally, which is like a 20 square kilometer area around where they are, uh, where their community fishes. These are not, you know, big fishing companies, but yeah. these are just individual fishermen. So right? for a dollar or two, you're getting real current diagnostic or information to where do you put your boat? Where do you drop your line? Exactly. Right. And then, you know, the uh, advantage there is one, you know, you have insights from weather again, both ground and space-based weather capabilities integrated. And it tells fishermen go out during this time and don't, don't go out during this time. There's a safety aspect to it. There's a fuel aspect to it because you're not going around, you know, blind uh, and yeah. just driving your diesel, diesel engine on there and, you know, ma wasting a lot of fuel and 
creating a lot more pollution and instead you're being efficient in your route, you could then say there's a, a security angle to it because off the coast of Bombay and Gujarat, for example, you have the problems between the Indian and the Pakistani Navy and a lot of uh, fishermen being captured by uh, that side. And it's the same, for example, in the India and the Sri Lanka boy for example right people just wearing off into the others waters and then just get capturing so with this you can even prove where they were located in and uh, and you could even warn them that you are going away from certain zones and you know be be safe and uh, get you know fish in our waters for example right and then uh, so and, and that and is the, that is a bit contention i didn't realize it when i was in, in sri lanka i didn't realize the contention between india and and sri lanka in terms of water rights is a huge issue yeah absolutely and you know these are uh, you have fishermen uh, in holds hundreds of fishermen i think who get caught in in between all of this every year yeah, I so, didn't, it's a big uh, issue. Yep. Yeah, and then you know you look at uh, market access. So let's say you had the catch. There's been papers uh, that have been scientifically recorded by our own space agency who did a pilot around this, and they said you know it increased the fish catch uh, by by fifty percent to these uh, fishermen, and then it reduced the fuel cost by like thirty percent, and you know they could earn like uh, literally. Uh, about you know three or four thousand dollars on a year more because of this technology. Amazing. So, so these are, I think, you know, this is the theme that I wanted to stress in this uh, in the podcast because uh, these are what I call as new space in new countries, because uh, you're telling people, you know, that uh, the fisherman doesn't care if his insights are coming from satellites or not. But if you tend to make him realize that, look, you know, because somebody invested in those satellites, you are able to now get this money uh, and you're being more productive and you're being more safe. And you could tell that story in a compelling way. I would say no fisherman would say no to space exploration then. It's, these are, these are fantastic examples of the insight that part of, I don't normally talk about Project Moon, not that much, but you've, you've just triggered so many things that we are working on. One of them is to, the, the, the fact is growing up, or the belief is growing up, that we get very, very little space education. And I don't know in your history, when you grow up, when you went to school through university, overall, before you specialized, how many hours of classroom when you were 12 and 14 and 16, did you get any education about space? Probably less than 10. <laughs> less than 10. And, and mine might have been similar because I remember we did a little bit about space a day or two in a social studies class and about... Uh, let's say I was maybe eighth grade. Otherwise, I have no knowledge. And part of Project Moon Hut's community engagement is to reach a billion hearts and minds, to get people to think differently. And within there, we're asking teachers to give every class a little bit of space. And what does that mean, a little bit of space? Is that a, a teacher has... Uh, blocks that they have to teach. And a block is a segment that they create their course content out of. So we're going to do a block on this, a block on this. It could be a day, a three weeks. It could be two days, whatever they're doing. 
And we're just saying, can you put in any class uh, a block of space? So if you're doing an English or a, a language class, so let's say your language, it could be Lithuanian, Russian, German, whatever, you could have a, a day or two on how literature was impacted by space. And then if you have a class in textiles or fashion or design, how fashion has been influenced by space. Or then if you're doing history, you could even go into movies and how movies have influenced the world in which we live. So every class from psychology, not just STEM, every class has within it a component, doesn't have to be long, a little bit of space, where the teacher says, how has psychology been impacted by space? How has uh, ceramics or design or astrology or does, um, mathematics, how has it impacted our discipline? And I think that would be, it's, I believe so strongly that it would change this exactly what you're saying. It would make young students, young individuals, all the way up through university, to ask themselves, why uh, did space impact me? Oh my God, I use a mobile phone, I take photographs, I do, I look up, I use weather, I get on a plane, I use GPS to get to my friend's house. Oh my God, I am a space-faring individual, which would make it normalized. Yeah, absolutely. And, uh, you know, that's also a part of uh, this narrative on, you know, how do you get people to solve problems that are uh, in this last mile, right? I talked to you about, uh, you know, the farmer and the fisherman, but you could imagine this with uh, every other, you know, uh, sector. And if you would say that the last mile individual in every other sector is uh, the problems that they have have a space solution or a space-based solution. And I think that that is what I, you know, call as inclusive space commercialization. So can you, just for the sake of argument, and I, I have, I'd like you to define your definition of last mile. So the last mile in my definition is uh, an average individual in an average country, for example. I mean, that's a very crude definition, but essentially what I'm trying to say is, is, is an average person who, uh, who is on the street in any part of the world, any part of the developing world. It could be in Africa, it could be in India, it could be in Southeast Asia, right? And yeah. in here's a job, it could be a fisherman, it could be a farmer, it could be somebody else, right? And you know, essentially, even there, they are just trying to become more productive and more efficient and more, you know, economically sound and socially sound and everything else, right? And uh, and that's where I think, you know, and technology is increasingly helping them being productive and doing all of that magic behind it, right? And unfortunately, there's a lot of other technologies that have impacted them. For example, you know cell phone or, uh, you know, 4G and uh, mobile phone connectivity has transformed them uh, over the last 15 years. But, but has space done it in a certain way? Not yet. It's, uh, I, the reason I ask is because I look at, however we want to determine it, uh, the, uh, um, first world, third world, developing nations. India has been around for a very, 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 very long time. And it's still developing 
uh, it could be developing for a very, very, very long time too. So it's not about age. It's about policy. It's about structure. It's about religious um, orientation. There's a lot of variables that go into whether someone is still developing or not. So my definition based upon the way you were talking is this last mile is the last mile for anybody on earth to improve their life standing or maybe not the productivity, but the quality of life that they endure and inclusive of all other species on earth. Because I, if farmers knew that there was, there were, I mean, fishermen knew there were whales or dolphins, they could stay away from that catch so that those species can survive. Or we look at the rainforest. I've, uh, one of the things I look at is the deforestation in the rainforest. And in one month, eight months ago, satellite imagery showed that we deforest about 750 square kilometers, which is to an average person who might be listening to this, it's a driving six hours or five hours in one direction and then the other direction, nonstop at maybe 90 kilometers per hour or 60 miles per hour. Uh, and that's a lot of space. So I, th- I, would, I would like to see this last mile inclusive of everybody. And uh, there's, again, a global perspective all of this, uh, to all of this as well, because, um, you know, about two years ago, I had uh, entered a conference on uh, something related to forest sustainability, and uh, there was a Norwegian NGO uh, you know, working on policies that affect uh, international policy making in agriculture. And, you know, they were talking about how the rainforests in, uh, in South America are disappearing because meat consumption in Europe and China have been on the rise and have for decades now. And uh, essentially, the feed for all the meat uh, including pigs and you know cows and everything, a lot of it comes from South America. With uh, you know a lot of the deforestation happening, uh, with you know people growing soy and other things uh, to feed, you know meat industry in uh, China and uh, in in Europe, and essentially that is because you know the South American countries will not tell their farmers to be more productive on their farms and grow more per acre rather than they'll say that we have a big enough land for go out and get the forests and spread our, you know, you don't need to be more efficient. You just need to get more land out of the forests, Right. And so the Norwegian NGO was talking about how can you, for example, use satellite imagery uh, and have the European union create a certification system that monitors these farms that uh, are supplying you know, to the meat industry and to make sure that they are investing in being more, you know, doing more precision farming and increasing productivity rather than getting the forests. But why? I mean, they, 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 the, there's, there's not, the certification is not going to go that far. So I don't believe that's a solution. That, my, my mind traveled to the conflict between China and the United States and the import changes uh, the import tariffs that were added on top of soy or uh, pig farms. And what happened as a result of that challenge, which I would say that the American system is a highly productive system when it comes to at least farming, is 
the supply chain between China and the United States for these products was disrupted. And the impact was that China invested a lot of money in South America, a lot of money in other countries where they don't have, they are not going to be as productive for a very long time. And now these countries at low productivity are operating to supply China with pigs and soy. And that supply chain to the United States will never, will not come back for a very long time. So what we've done is we've actually exacerbated global warming or resource depletion, uh, over, over, um, use of chemicals for, uh, that run into spill off into the oceans or into water streams. So we've actually exacerbated the entire situation over the past geopolitical five years. Yeah, and uh, you know, space can be a tool in such uh, policy making, especially you know, one uh, when you have to when you hope that there's uh, you can get good behavior out of uh, you know actors that you don't have sovereign control about, but uh, off, but you could create good practices in industries where even though you don't have sovereign control, the streamlining uh, of, uh, uh, you know, the, the procurement streamlining and everything else can be based on space-based insights. I love it. Right. So, and it could be also in terms of, you know, connectivity, it could be uh, even today, you know, we have no satellite internet in India. Can you believe it? Really? No satellite? Yeah. <laughs> wow. The, uh, it was, um, who was his name? Jeffrey Manber, who mm -hmm. talked about how he, and you said it, so it's hitting me. You said space-based insights, which I like the term. However, I don't like it partially because of Jeffrey. And Jeffrey, who's anybody listening, he runs a company called NanoRacks. He's put 700 payloads into the International Space Station, put up several hundred satellites. Very well-known player, and I know that uh, you know him. So what Jeffrey had said that I thought was an interesting comment is he, that why are there space agencies? He doesn't like them. He thinks they're, they're counterproductive, that they they diminish the ecosystem of capitalism or the growth of the industry because everybody's trying to feed these mechanisms where by doing so, we don't have, we don't use the term. There is no automotive agency. There is no farming agency who runs all farming and runs all automotive and runs all, they have lobbying efforts and they have groups and they have associations. But countries don't have this term. They have this term space agency, which means everything for space in our country, we're going to monitor and we're going to try to direct. And when we say space-based insights, it'll be an interesting day when someone doesn't use space-based, but just use insights. Yeah, and, and you can see that also in, uh, you know, that's the part of the legacy institutions, right? So because I think, you know, apart from the technology investments that, uh, you know, new technology investments and new science investments that uh, space agencies do, are doing, a lot of the space agency uh, investments are just jobs programs around yep. the world. This is fascinating. So I guess we're on to assumptions of technology and the lessons you've learned. Is that where we are? Okay. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So that was the last, uh, you know, like the last bit that I wanted to tell you. And that brings back me to the initial part of the episode that we, you know, talked about uh, rocket mail. So uh, a lot of the assumptions around 
space based uh, you know new space based uh, services are you know people immediately say space kit right and it's a, it's a market where people have to invest billions of dollars and make sure that this you know space planes going between there and then there'll be people up to pay 100 200000 to go up and come for 20 minutes right so and that's been you know people have been telling that for the last 20 years or so and then uh, there's not even i think a single operational space tourism flight well, that has virgin virgin galact uh, go, um what's galactic's name uh the galactic version didn't take off again they had another challenge yeah yeah so uh so what i'm trying to say there is uh, you know we discussed about rocket mail right about the assumption that rocket mail is going to be a service that people will use was made in the 1930s and uh, and so that that meant that there was a whole construct and investment around people thinking rocket mail uh, is the thing for the future and airmail will not you know be around but then you know today you see fedex owning aircraft not rockets right yeah. and uh, so i think we as an industry are in some instances or in many instances when we think about the future of services and technology we are sometimes making a lot of assumptions that are on similar lines on similar services which may not be true ever in uh, in in as as things play out and i think uh, we have to be open enough for us to you know organically see people deploying new services and coming up with uh, new ideas and new innovations and uh, and rather than seal the 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 ideas around pillars where i would go and sell you know space tourism as this new pillar and somebody else will sell me you know space based power as a new pillar and somebody else will sell me like something else right on on all of this and i think that's uh, uh, that's the adoption often the the adoption chain is uh, something that we oversee a lot in the space sector so uh, one of the fascinating uh, you know stories that i was reading it was about uh, michelin the tire company i think had the patent for uh, for tubeless tire cars in the early 90s and this is Uh, an innovation at the market reads right because nobody wants to have a flat uh, in the middle of the road and you know uh, pull out to the, to the side and then change tires and then drive right everybody wants to uh, you know even though they have a, a puncture they would want to drive 200 kilometers and then you know think about changing tires when they've reached their destination this is a technology that the consumer needs in the automotive industry and you know michelin the tire company came up with it but then they the the car manufacturers obviously wanted because they can sell you know to the consumers that our cars have these tubeless tires and you know and it's a fantastic fit when you think about it because the tire company sells the car car manufacturers can say this is a novelty in our cars so come buy our cars and then the consumers need it uh, and you know so it's perfect thing but people launched it this and then people figured out that they completely ignored the whole servicing industry because the servicing industry then said okay there's this new tubeless tire and i need to invest into you know training my manpower in knowing how to operate on this in fixing a puncture in this and i need to invest in the new tooling that goes along with it 
And so there are uh, 99 other cars on the street that don't use this technology. So, so therefore, I'm not going to, I'm going to say no to this one customer. Yeah. So, so I think, you know, space has a lot of that kind of things going on at the moment. And, uh, and I would like to see kind of these assumptions play out, you uh, know, in a way for me, I think uh, this one interesting thing that we could discuss about space, right? For will space tourism be in a way that would be uh, an entertainment uh, park theme park where you would say, I will go visit Disney world every once a year, or would you want that to be like the aviation world where you would say, I will fly from, uh, you know, like Bangalore and in India to New York in uh, two hours. It's a, it's a fantastic question because I, I don't believe, and this goes all the way back to the first conversation, and this is six years ago before Elon was really big and blue. I said to Bruce, we are not going to build a space industry on space tourism. That's not where it needs to be the foundational aspect of the industry. So I completely believe that this whole flying from Bangalore to Berlin or Bangalore to Tokyo, whatever you want me to go, is really the, the, the foundational building block of our future. And we have to be careful that we don't promote space as tourism, but we promote it as what you've been saying, brilliantly have been saying, uh, the next iteration of improvement of life on Earth for all species. With, I added the all species, but yes. Yeah, and uh, it also goes with all the utilization of you know uh, other planetary bodies, including Moon, Mars, and everywhere. And because you know the the first explorers, you know, India and China uh, had uh, five uh, or you know more than twenty five percent of the world's GDP, uh, and had a very big monopoly over the uh, lots of trade go going back to you know the last uh, millennium, right? So. The reason why explorers were trying to find a way to to India or to China a lot through the oceans and you know through through seas and everything is because there was the promise uh, of this you know spice or you know or other things cloth textile uh, you know fabrics and things like that that uh, people wanted back in home and they figured out that if we could optimize and we could do all of this uh, and, you know, we get the trade route secure, we could, you know, you know, get all of this uh, going and we could establish a trade route and all of this. Right. And that was the, uh, and, you know, the whole thing that I'm trying to say there is that people knew that something was there and it was already up for grabs. And it was not like people would have to come to India and then, uh, mine pepper for the next 20 years yeah. before they would take back, you know, 10 grams of pepper back to England. Yeah. You, you can't build the, which is what we talked about earlier. You can't build the entire ecosystem or the entire supply chain from beginning to end. There has to be uh, pieces to build that model. And everybody's taking a, a small piece of that puzzle. Yeah, and also it's also about you know who uh, what gets commercialized and what is commercializable is a big question, right? 
and uh, i haven't uh, still got the uh, got the the answer to this for example for uh, the moon uh, for example right people uh, who are moon advocates who uh, talk about like you know helium 3 being on the moon and and some kind of minerals there uh, we don't even know like you know we don't even have are not even close to any technology that allows to us to mine uh, you know uh, helium on 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 the moon or things like that right so there is a, a sense certain sense of uh, for me i think you know what have what would have, in my construct people will build uh, services and technologies that serve people on the earth so seamlessly and as an industry like the aviation industry did and through that the technology becomes so mature uh that you know there's all the technologies that are relevant to outer space exploration becomes a reality in all of that cool any last words to add to this oh i think it's been uh, i think the one of the longest chats that i had with anyone so yeah <laughs> uh, i i i haven't really thought of you know talk to anybody on such uh, broad areas and you know getting my mind flowing on so many different things consolidated at the same time and uh, this is i think the first time in my life that i've spoken so much uh, and uh, honestly about you know what i think about the industry and what i think about uh, all of this so i have to thank you for giving me the opportunity well thank you i my i'm smiling ear to ear because one of the things that i enjoy is learning from amazing people like yourself and to have my own mind blown distorted reshaped by the lessons that other people have learned so you you were brilliant here i i really appreciate you going through all of these uh stories of history and tying them to present day i think it was uh, amazing so thank you for taking the time to be with us today and i i know that this podcast will be a very valuable podcast that should be shared throughout india and around the world because it is such important i'll say important it is such uh, insightful thoughts so you did a brilliant job today thank you thank you uh, again david you're welcome so let's uh we want to take uh, for all of you out there who took the time to listen in i hope you had the same amazing experience that i've had uh exploring the world in a way that i had not thought of and and narian did a, a fabulous job and i so i do hope you walked away learning something and i also hope that you as a listener take the time to explore project moon hut there is a podcast there is a video up you can type in under youtube you go youtube.com uh, and then search for project moon hut and you'll see our logo just put the video up it's not what project moon hut is about it is not what project moon hut is about let me make sure you understand that but what it does do is it gives you a different orientation to what project moon hut has components of our belief structure and our directive and what we're trying to accomplish as an organization as a global organization we have about 50 60 people around the world helping us in different ways and we'd love to see your participation so is there one way narian that some people if they want to get a hold of you that they could what would be the best way the best i think is uh, email my email is uh, narayan@saxsearch.co 
Okay, so, and, let's, uh, so, so why don't you spell that out? Because your name is, uh, just to make sure the spelling. Yeah, it is N-A-R-A-Y-A-N at satsearch.co. S-A-T-S-E-A-R-C-H. Yes, so, right. so uh, again, thank you very much for uh, everybody out there listening. If you'd like to connect, I'd like or we'd like to connect with you. You can reach me at david at projectmoonhut.org. You can reach us at uh, Twitter uh, at Project Moon Hut. You can connect to us on, again, YouTube, which has just been put up this video. We haven't been marketing, so that's new. You've got the podcast series you can listen to. If you want to get a hold of me, you can also connect to me at, at Goldsmith on Twitter. I'm on LinkedIn, Facebook, uh, Mr. David Goldsmith, even on Instagram. And we, uh, we do have a, at Project, we have a Project Moonhot Instagram. We just haven't put anything up yet. So for everybody out there, for everybody who's been listening, I'm David Goldsmith. And thank you for being part of our program.